Fired Up show starts right now. And welcome, everyone. Welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve. I host the show. And I'd like to thank each and every one of you for downloading or listening in on our podcast this week. Uh, We've got some interesting news to bring to you. Uh, Firstly and most importantly, as always, let's do our numbers uh, with the COVID. Uh, 96.4 million cases have been reported to date. Uh, 1.059 million people have died from the disease and 616 million people have been vaccinated. So we continue to make progress on that front. Although coming into the cold and flu season, uh, we need to make sure that our vaccinations are up to date, that our boosters are up to date, and that we get out there and get that flu shot. Uh, The flu, as always, is going to loom uh, heavy for us this coming season. Uh, Related in the monkeypox arena, we're at 25,851 reported cases, and uh, that continues to be concern. In news related to viruses, uh, just as sort of an FYI, uh, in checking with the CDC and looking at what's uh, out ahead, uh, they are reporting that there is another virus that uh, is garnering some interest and uh, research. Uh, And this comes out of uh, Russia and that they have discovered this virus called Costa 2, K-H-O-S-T-A, and uh, it is a uh, sub-coronavirus category form similar to uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Uh, This one uh, was discovered uh, in bats in Russia, and while it's still way, way too early to Uh, gain any kind of assessment of uh, what the overall threat of this virus could be. It is something that scientists uh, in Russia and here in the U.S. and in other areas of the world are in fact keeping an eye on. Uh, A couple of key things. Um, It is uh, considered not a serious, and that's in quotes, virus in the sense that it would not cause serious diseases in humans. However, it is uh, being found to be resistant to uh, the COVID vaccines, uh, which does raise some concern if this virus were to spread um, outside of the laboratory. So, you know, it, it just adds to what we say here on this show all the time is that we have to be prepared and we have to have our defenses in place and that means, you know, let's make sure that we are getting our vaccinations, we are getting our boosters, that we get our flu shots, that we take all the precautions we need in order to protect us from not only COVID, uh, but the you know other boogie viruses that are out there that could come over the horizon. Um, in terms of, you know, monkeypox, of course, we need to stay vigilant and make sure that we are protecting ourselves from that virus as well. So, you know, it's just an ongoing battle to maintain our health, and we need to make sure we're doing everything we can to uh, keep healthy, keep protected, 
and follow the guidance of science and medicine on uh, what we should be doing. All right, in other news and taking a quick trip around uh, some of the headlines, uh, this past week we saw Hurricane Ian slam into uh, Florida and create just a huge uh, swath of damage in that state. Uh, as of today, um, I think the latest uh, death count is uh, like 75 people uh, have been reported dead. However, that number could change and go higher as more and more uh, recovery efforts and you know investigations into the, the damage caused uh, is found. So we'll keep an eye on that. In addition, there is a new hurricane that is moving toward the west coast of Mexico uh, that looks to be right now, as of this broadcast, uh, at least a Category 4 storm. So it has not yet made landfall, but it is being kept under observation. And according to the National Weather Service, there are two additional storms of concerns that are building out in the Atlantic Ocean that we will need to keep an eye on. And that just says that the 2022 hurricane season is in full effect. So, you know, this gave me pause to think about some things. And one of the things that uh, people are being advised is the need to have flood insurance uh, for many people. And this, this would seem surprising that people who live in areas that are hurricane prone, uh, that a large percentage of homeowners do not have flood insurance. They may have, you know, wind and, and storm insurance, but they don't have flood insurance specifically, which means that when you see the kind of devastation that Ian brought to Florida and North Carolina and South Carolina and so forth, that in many cases, homeowners are not fully covered and uh, would not get the, the damages uh, addressed and the monies paid to help them rebuild. So, you know, obviously officials are calling for people to get flood insurance. But here's the rub. And I, I dug into this. Uh, in many cases, uh, what you find, particularly in areas like Florida or that are hurricane prone, the number of insurers that provide flood insurance uh, tends to be somewhat limited. In some of the areas of Florida that I, I researched, there were only two companies that were providing flood insurance. And that insurance uh, is you know, extremely expensive. I saw one quote that said uh, from one company that a flood insurance policy for a typical home could cost as much as $35,000 a year. Now, compare that with your normal homeowner's insurance for, for those of us who don't live in hurricane zones and so forth, where it could be, you know, a, a few hundred dollars or even, you know, a, 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 a couple of thousand dollars. Flood insurance could run you, you know, substantially more than that. Uh, and, you know, it, it is something that if you are going to choose to live in these zones that, you know, you have little recourse to pay if you expect to get reimbursed and made whole should a disaster occur. So, 
you know, it, it begs a discussion with, you know, our elected officials on what can we do about this? Uh, is a national or regional uh, flood insurance program uh, underwritten by the government? Is that something that we should look into? Uh, should there be some type of, uh, you know, government assistance in obtaining flood insurance, uh, perhaps a, a reimbursement or, you know, some kind of, of tax credit system or whatever in order to make it more affordable for people to get this kind of protection. So that's something we'll be talking about in the future here on Fired Up. Uh, but it is something that, especially if you live in those zones, you may want to seriously consider. All right, to um, the, the main subject that I wanted to address here in the first segment of our show. Uh, as of today, as of the broadcast of this show, the new Supreme Court has, uh, has taken their seats for the October uh, 2022 term of the Supreme Court, and it features the, uh, the swearing-in and seating of the newest justice on the Supreme Court, and that would be Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, who uh, takes her seat and begins uh, formally hearing cases uh, as a Supreme Court justice uh, starting today. So there were a couple of articles out there, and I want to uh, hit on some of the highlights of what uh, SCOTUS will be looking at uh, in the October-November time frame in its, its new session. Uh, they'll be hearing cases, and we've talked about this in the past, uh, on this show about the kind of cases that were likely to come through the court, uh, particularly uh, following the uh, Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And we kind of laid out that there were several areas of concern that the Supreme Court is going to be addressing in the coming term. So, you know, what we're seeing is that uh, they will be hearing curse uh, curses. <laughs> They'll be hearing curses from us, but they will be hearing cases that could end affirmative action in higher education, could further gut the Voting Rights Act, uh, could also empower state legislatures to enable restrictive voting laws and gerrymandered maps with no judicial oversight. And we talked about this uh, in a prior episode, either the last one or the one before that. Uh, and uh, cases that might take away the ability of wrongly convicted prisoners who, by no happenstance, are disproportionately black to petition for the reversal of their punishments. So we're going to take a look at some of these key cases that are on the, the docket for the uh, new session of the court. Um, you know, so, you know, just to, to kind of lay the background, as we've talked about, uh, the conservative side of the political world in this country, they've been working for decades. You know, we've talked about the Southern strategy. We've talked about the, uh, the voter restrictions and disenfranchisement. We've talked about gerrymandering. All of these elements are part of the strategy that conservatives have worked for decades to install uh, what could be called an unbreakable judicial block that could gut the remnants of what is known as the New Deal regime and roll back advances of the civil rights movement and, you know, uh, all that it means. Well, they, they've worked hard for decades and it looks like now they have what they need. Um, 
So some of the cases and some of the most important ones that are coming in the October sitting of the Supreme Court. One is Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard University and Students for Fair Admissions Inc. versus the University of North Carolina. Now these are, uh, uh, are known as, are, are what are called joined cases because they have a similar uh, approach, a similar content, and are looking for a similar outcome. So sometimes the Supreme Court will merge cases together and deal with multiple cases as one. Uh, in this situation, the two cases are challenging affirmative action policies at Harvard University, uh, a private university, and the University of North Carolina, which is a public university system. Uh, these will almost certainly result in the overturning of decades of precedent uh, upholding the consideration of race in the college admission process. And, you know, side note, we've seen uh, in the aforementioned Dobbs case how much uh, weight and gravity this Supreme Court holds for prior judicial precedents. Uh, in both cases, uh, this, this organization, Students for Fair Admission, and it's uh, run by an anti-affirmative action legal activist by the name of Edward Bloom. And they're asking the court to overrule its prior precedent upholding the narrow use of race in college admissions decisions. Uh, where, you know, this, this gentleman, Edward Bloom, is an opponent of race-conscious policymaking, previously bought cases on behalf of white students like uh, someone named Abigail Fisher, in both the Harvard and North Carolina cases, he argues that Asian American applicants are the ones most harmed by affirmative action policies promoting the enrollment of black, Latino, and Native American applicants. So stepping out of the article there for a second, uh, we, we see that you know, this strategy is one where they are uh, looking to pit one minority group against others uh, with the goal of eliminating the benefit to all of them. Uh, you know, again, according to the article, uh, and this, this comes out of the Huffington, um, yeah, the Huffington Post, uh, according to the article, uh, it, it is you know, a, an almost certainty that the uh, case will succeed in ending race-conscious affirmative action policies for higher education institutions. This will likely result in fewer black and Latino students attending the most highly selective American universities, colleges, and graduate schools, depending on the admissions policies schools adopt in response. So as you can see, they are pitting one uh, minority group against another or an, uh, a group of another's uh, in an, the effort to eliminate the benefit overall for all um, you know, ethnic minorities in consideration for college admissions. So uh, and we'll keep an eye on, on these cases as they proceed forward. Another one that is scheduled for arguments uh, coming in October, a case called uh, Merrill versus Milligan, uh, and this is you know another uh, case where uh, it, the the action is 
designed to lower the number of black and Latino students at selected schools, uh, the, the court also seems poised to reduce the number of black and elected representatives uh, via this case. Uh, the case originated as a lawsuit filed by black Alabamians who claimed that Alabama's new congressional district map should have included two black majority districts rather than one, according to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, a three-judge lower court panel featuring two Trump nominees agreed and ordered the state to draw a new map. But five conservative justices on the Supreme Court stepped in, reversed the lower court's decision, and took up the case for argument. This reversal of a lower court panel's ruling, which is rare, uh, on a Section 2 racial vote dilution case signals that the court's conservatives are not, I'm sorry, are out to rewrite the last 40 years of Voting Rights Act precedent. Alabama wants to gut the Voting Rights Act by introducing a race-blind test for redistricting. Such a test would eviscerate the Voting Rights Act and likely lead to what some observers fear could be the, quote, biggest decline in black and Latino representation in generations. So, you know, here again, the uh, current Supreme Court is looking to ignore uh, prior precedent uh, and push out into new ground uh, in areas that could create a, you know, a, a very, very um, bad situation for elected uh, officials, particularly black and Latino, uh, and, you know, set that back, uh, you know, 40 years and, and affect it, uh, you know, 40, 50 years into the future. Um, another case that is coming before the court is called Moore versus Harper. And this is another redistricting case. Uh, North Carolina state legislative Republicans want the court to adopt a previously fringe theory that state legislatures are not bound by their state constitutions when enacting election law or drawing legislative district maps. If the court adopts this, quote, independent state legislative theory, close quote, it would mean that state legislatures could enact any legislative, I'm sorry, any election law or district map without state courts being able to rule on whether it violates the state's constitution. And uh, we talked about this as well in a prior show uh, as something that is very troubling because it, it also goes uh, further in, in terms of limiting the input of other uh, courts, uh, particularly at the federal level, uh, as well as you know, Congress and the Senate uh, as to what they can do uh, against uh, these kinds of uh, gerrymandering and, and disenfranchisement laws. Uh, this case doesn't just threaten to overturn centuries of precedent. It seeks to make new law out of thin air, according to the article. The argument presented to the court by the North Carolina GOP is even partially based on a fraudulent document. Since the Supreme Court has already ruled that partisan gerrymandering claims cannot be challenged in federal courts, there could be practically no recourse 
for anyone to challenge a partisan gerrymander if state courts cannot hear them either. This would enable the large number of state legislatures already gerrymandered in favor of Republicans to solidify and expand those gerrymanders in perpetuity while enacting election laws not subject to state court review. Uh, and that's a very critical case because basically it takes the legislature's uh, intent to you know, gerrymander uh, their electorate uh, and basically builds a shield wall around it that makes it almost untouchable. Um, another case that will come before the court, uh, and this one's scheduled for arguments uh, in early November, uh, is Jones versus Hendricks. And in this case, uh, the plaintiff in Jones v. Hendricks asked the high court to allow someone convicted of a crime in district court to petition for a reversal of their conviction based on a subsequent retroactively applicable Supreme Court decision. So, you know, in this case, uh, the plaintiff, uh, Marcus D'Angelo Jones, wants to vacate his sentence relating to his conviction for possessing illegal firearms as an ex-felon. After he was convicted, the Supreme Court ruled in a case called uh, Rehafe versus U.S. that when prosecutors try cases for firearms possession by a person with a felony conviction, they must prove that the person knew both that they possessed a gun and that they could not legally possess it. In the Jones case, prosecutors did not prove he knew he couldn't possess the gun. Um, so, you know, this, this law has some wide-reaching ramifications in that it can mean uh, and be extended to lots of other scenarios where a retroactive decision from the Supreme Court could overturn uh, lower court uh, decisions. Um, yet another, Axon Enterprise Inc. versus Federal Trade Commission and Security and Exchange Commission versus Cochrane. And again, these conjoined cases uh, that have similar uh, arguments and uh, similar requests for outcome uh, are being heard as one case. Um, both the the Axon and Cochrane cases concern with the corporations subject to administrative proceedings by federal agencies for potentially violating the law can file suit in courts to stop such an agency proceeding. Such a change would give corporations a new tool to evade enforcement actions over financial, antitrust, and other violations. So, you know, this would be a, a substantial gut to the FTC's structure. Uh, and while you know, its structure is not being questioned as unconstitutional in the Axon case, a negative ruling against the commission could aid in future lawsuits brought by anti-competitive corporations seeking to neuter the top antitrust agency as it sets new, more aggressive tone during the Joe Biden administration. And if you want to you know, kind of give a backdrop to that, think about the arguments that are being raised against uh, corporations like Google and uh, Amazon and, and others who are, are in Apple, who are using their dominant market position to essentially set the ground rules for everybody else 
to operate by. So this law could have uh, impact on those cases. Uh, Sackett versus the Environmental Protection Agency. And, you know, it, it's like every, every Supreme Court term, it seems like we get a case involving the EPA. Um, you know, last term, the, the Supreme Court limited the manner in which the EPA could regulate greenhouse gas emissions at power plants, continuing conservative justices' attempts to deconstruct the federal administrative state. In this case, a lawsuit involving the waters of the United States presents the court with another opportunity to advance its program of disabling the federal agency regulatory process. Now, keep in mind that when you think about cases like uh, Flint and the lead pipe contamination and you know Mississippi with the water problems they've had there, uh, think about the lawsuit brought on behalf of uh, veterans and others against uh, Camp Lejeune with the the, the bad water they had. All of these cases may be impacted by a decision from the Supreme Court on this particular case. And finally, uh, the last one on, on at least this preliminary list is uh, Health and Hospital Corp versus Talevsky. And again, this is scheduled for arguments in early November. Uh, this case presents an opportunity for the court to blow up Medicaid by precluding people from filing lawsuits to challenge how states administer federal programs. So the case itself involves a lawsuit brought by the Talevsky family against Health and Hospital Corp for operating a nursing home where their late relative suffered abuse in violation of their rights under the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act, which establishes such rights at hospitals accepting Medicare and Medicaid. So what, what this would do under current court precedent, it allows private individuals to sue to enforce federal laws like Medicaid under Section 1983 of the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. Now, if, if this seems kind of strange, the Ku Klux Klan Act uh, was uh, initially enabled to, uh, to allow formerly enslaved black people to file suit in federal court against state or local officials terrorizing them or denying their rights. So, you know, in, in 1961, the Supreme Court under Justice Warren uh, interpreted that act to allow a private right of action to sue uh, police officers for the use of excessive force. It has since become a principal tool, a key tool for people to ensure that state governments do not violate their rights by not following federal law. If the court ends that private right of action, uh, it could lead to a state government opposed to Medicaid to disable the program for millions in the state. It could also do the same thing for other federal programs operated by state governments like SNAP, the food stamp program, and so forth. So there you have just a, you know, a, a taste of the uh, cases that are coming before this new sitting of the Supreme Court. And, you know, a, as we've talked about in prior podcasts, uh, this should be very concerning to anyone uh, out there who is concerned about, you know, preservation of their rights, 
and protections under the law because you know as you know was was alluded to in the opinion in the Dobbs decision uh, this Supreme Court is coming to undo many of the precedents that you know we have accepted as uh, you know for granted for many many years um, and you know our response to this has to be that we get engaged with our state legislatures uh, our federal uh, Senate and House uh, that we we you know let the president know that we let our lawmakers know that you know this this cannot be allowed to proceed unfortunately that these cases are in front of the Supreme Court means that you know uh, the the actions can't be stopped uh, however we can encourage our elected officials to respond by codifying as many of these into law under the Constitution uh, as possible to protect them from further degradation. So we're going to be talking about these cases as they come up here on Fired Up. We're going to be keeping an eye out to see what other cases are going to come before this new Supreme Court. So, you know, to Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, welcome. I uh, hope that you're strapped in and have your hands and feet inside the ride at all times because you are, are sitting in on a contentious session for the Supreme Court in the coming year and coming years uh, beyond that. So uh, we'll pause there. We'll take our break and uh, we'll be right back with more of the Fired Up podcast right after this message. And you're listening to us on WJMS Media and we'll be right back. I was going to get my voter ID card because they said you had to have it in order to be able to vote. When I got there, I approached the gentleman at the counter and told him what I wanted. I showed him my veteran's card. He said that was no good. He said you had to have a state-issued ID card in order to be able to vote. Seniors. Women, people of color, young adults, those with low incomes, people with disabilities. Every citizen needs to review your documentation now to make sure you can vote in November. Please check with your local county election board to make sure the name on your photo ID closely matches the name you used when you registered to vote. Please contact us at 866-OUR-VOTE or 866-687-8683. And welcome back. Welcome back to the Fired Up Podcast right here on WJMS Media. All right, let's, uh, let's shift gears here for a little bit. Um, many times in, in doing my research for this show and, and providing you the, the information that I bring, I, I run across things that uh, kind of fall into the, wait, what? category. Uh, and this next uh, story is kind of in line with that. So, fact, we just had a major hurricane hit Florida. Also, fact, one of Florida's elected officials is uh, Representative Matt Gates. And final fact, Representative Matt Gates was one of several House Republicans who voted against a resolution to allow FEMA 
to use up to $15 million in the Disaster Relief Fund uh, to aid uh, relief you know, following the hurricane in Florida. So this article comes from Huff Huffington Post, and it says uh, Representative Matt Gates, Republican of Florida, a Florida native and lawmaker, voted against a measure to free up millions of dollars in disaster relief for the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA. Gates was one of several House Republicans on Friday who voted against a resolution to allow FEMA to use up to $15 million from the Disaster Relief Fund, and this is according to a report in Newsweek. The bill passed in both the House and Senate, and it is uh, waiting for President Joe Biden's approval. The vote comes in the same week that Hurricane Ian killed dozens of Florida residents, flooded communities, and destroyed homes and businesses. And uh, Gates and other lawmakers added their names to a letter saying that they'd, quote, do whatever is necessary, close quote, to stop funding the Biden administration, according to what uh, was reported in Newsweek. Quote, any legislation that sets the stage for a lame duck fight on government funding gives Democrats one final opportunity to pass that agenda, the letter said. Uh, Gates is no longer, uh, I'm sorry, Gates is no stranger to voting against hurricane relief, as he also didn't vote in favor of a $15 billion relief package as Hurricane Irma which led to at least 92 deaths in the contiguous United States, approached Florida in 2017. Uh, he did, however, uh, sign on to pass a separate $7.5 billion hurricane relief bill earlier that week. Uh, the $15 billion package was linked to a deal between Democrats and then-President Donald Trump to raise the debt ceiling and fund the government until December of 2017. And according to a quote from Getz, only Congress can find a way to turn a natural disaster into a trillion new dollars of spending authority, he said, at the time of the 2017 package. But wait, that's not all. There's more. Uh, Senator Marco Rubio, also a Florida resident, a Florida Republican, uh, was asked by CNN host Dana Bash, and this is according to an article also in Newsweek, uh, on Sunday about his past votes uh, against aid to help northeastern states recover from Hurricane Sandy in 2012 as he currently pushes for Hurricane Ian aid. Uh, as said, Hurricane Ian struck Florida on Wednesday and we've, we've all seen the news reports. Uh, we know that uh, the, the death toll now is approaching uh, 70. Uh, relief efforts are already underway with Florida officials pushing for more federal aid to help rebuild their communities. Last week, President Joe Biden authorized some federal FEMA aid to the state. On Friday, uh, Rubio, along with Senator Rick Scott, who is also a Florida Republican, wrote a letter to Senate leaders urging for a relief package. Uh, in that letter, they, they stated Hurricane Ina, Ian will be remembered and studied as one of the most devastating hurricanes to hit the United States. Communities across Florida have been completely destroyed and lives have been forever changed. The letter continues, a robust and timely federal response 
including through supplemental programs and funding, will be required to ensure that sufficient resources are provided to rebuild critical infrastructure and public services capacity and to assist our fellow Floridians in rebuilding their lives. Uh, but yet on Sunday, during a discussion on the State of the Union show, uh, Dana Bash pressed Rubio about his past votes against aid for the states, including New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, struck by Hurricane Sandy in 2012. Uh, and she asked, why should other senators vote for relief for your state when you didn't vote for a package to help theirs? The senator defended his past votes against a sweeping $60 billion bill for Hurricane Sandy, saying it was filled with, quote, pork, close quote, referring to the term for unrelated funding for spending projects that he said had nothing to do with disaster relief. He was quoted as saying that he always voted for hurricane disaster relief, and I've even voted for it without pay force. Uh, he said, what I didn't vote for in Sandy was because they included things like roof for a museum in Washington, D.C., and for fisheries in Alaska. It had been loaded up with a bunch of things that had nothing to do with disaster relief. Uh, uh, Dana Bash clarified that the museum roof was damaged by the hurricane and the fisheries were related to a separate disaster. She pressed Rubio on whether he would vote against Hurricane Ian relief if it contains anything uh, that smells like pork. He goes, and he replied, sure, I'll fight against it having pork in it. That's the key. We shouldn't have it in there because it undermines our ability to come back and do this uh, in the future. So the, the, as we always said, you have to you know, be on the lookout for the games that are being played. Um, so uh, Matt Gates is, uh, has, has voted uh, against the, the initial package for Hurricane Ian, uh, although it is uh, reported that he is leaning toward voting for a, a different package that may come down the pipe uh, in the coming days. So it begs the question, you know, for Florida Republicans in, in this case, but for Republicans in general, because this is not the first time that your elected officials have voted against uh, your uh, interests uh, for whatever reasons they may or may not state. Uh, and it, it begs the question as to why do we keep returning politicians to office who talk the game, you know, talk about what they promise. And I include Democrats in this as well. Don't get me wrong. Um, everybody knows, and before everybody gets up in arms and start talking about all the things Biden promised that didn't get delivered so far, et cetera, et cetera. No, this is a both side thing. But for right now, in the context of uh, the, the decisions by uh, Representative Gates and Senator Rubio and Senator Rick Scott and others, uh, this is talking about them in this particular case. Why do we keep sending these people who promise us the sun, the moon, and the stars, and then you know, deliver us you know, simply a ham sandwich and a bag of chips. Uh, and, and why do we keep sending them back to office? You know, We as the voters, and, and as I said on this show many times, 
need to do our diligence. We need to dig in, do the research. We need to find out what it is that our elected officials stand for or don't stand for and compare that with what it is we want them to stand for. And then, you know, vote based on where that comparison comes out. And this is more than just federal officials. You should definitely be doing this for your state and local officials as well, because they are more in control of your daily lives than the federal uh, senators and federal uh, U.S. representatives are. Yes, they have, you know, impact on our lives, but your school board is elected at the local level. Your county commissioners, your sheriffs, your fire departments, uh, all of those are, are elected, selected, and funded based on voting that happens at the local level. So if you're not paying attention to what's going on with your local representatives and only focusing on the national level items, then you, know, you are, are leaving yourself vulnerable to be taken advantage of, ignored, and disenfranchised at the local level by your officials. So, lesson to be learned. You know, as we say, do your diligence, communicate with your elected officials all the way up and all the way down the line, and make sure they're doing what you sent them to do. If you're a Democrat, you need to be doing everything that you can to make sure that elected officials are put in office that reflect your views. Uh, if you're a Republican, same argument. Uh, but you also need to make sure that the people that we are electing are qualified to do the job. Um, you know, not to pick on anybody in particular, but to pick on, you know, candidates like Herschel Walker. Uh, if you listen to what he says, you have to you have to almost have a head scratch moment going, how did this guy get here? You know, if you listen to the views of uh, politicians like um, Mastriano here in my home state of Pennsylvania with his views on you know, a woman's right to choose and autonomy over her own body, you have to question, how did we get here? And the answer is quite simply, uh, we didn't do our diligence. We didn't uh, question. We didn't ask the questions. We didn't require the answers. So, you know, we, we get to this point. Now, as we covered in the first half of the show, we talked about the Supreme Court uh, and the new session. Now, Supreme Court justices are not elected. They are appointed by the party in power, specifically by the president. Um, however, the people that appoint and vote for them are elected. They are confirmed uh, for their offices by the electorate. So we do have uh, influence over who sits on our Supreme Court. Now, uh, you know, take in mind that a Supreme Court appointment is a lifetime appointment, so it is going to take a long time to fix uh, any mistakes that were made. But that still goes to say that when we are looking at who we send to office, whether it's in Washington, D.C., or your state capitol, or your, your city hall, town hall, county uh, board, whatever, uh, you need to look at what these people will be working on and accomplishing on your behalf and use that uh, tool in your assessment of them, in your questions to them, and your, your judgment 
on whether or not they are the right person to be in that position. After all, the truth is, there's only so much blame that you can lay at the feet of a politician uh, before you need to assess how much of that blame uh, you need to, to shoulder and bear as the, the person um, that elected them into that office. So you can, you can talk about you know, how this politician is crooked and that politician is racist and, and all of these other things that we hear in the arguments and the talking sessions in the media now. But at the end of the day, you have to remember and realize that whoever occupies that office, we put them there. And if, if we didn't do our job, if we didn't do our homework, if we didn't do our diligence, then in some regards and, and you know, tough love, y'all, we deserve what we get. So the, the key is, as we say all the time, Dig into your candidates. Find out what it is they stand for. Ask them the questions. Go to their meetings. Go to their offices. Email them. Call them. Write them letters. Find out what they stand for and whether or not that aligns with what you stand for. And if the answer to that question is no, find another candidate. Find someone or, or you know motivate or push someone to run for office that reflects the way you view how you want this country, the, your state, your town, your county to run. Because at the end of the day, we send them there. They work for us, and it's not the other way around. And you know, if we are not happy with an elected official, we have an ultimate remedy, and it's called another election. So you know, just word to the wise, word to the wise, bringing you the message. All right, uh, the last segment we're going to do and goes along with uh, elected officials in a way. And, you know, last show we devoted a, a lengthy part of the segment to talking about things that you need to do in order to vote. Uh, we're going to recap that just in case you missed it on the last show. And by the way, you can hear that show uh, on you know, Spotify. Uh, Stitcher, uh, Google Pod Store, Apple Pod Store, uh, all of the the resources, or just go to the search engine of your choice and search for uh, Fired Up Politics or Fired Up Podcast, or search for WJMS Media, and you'll find links to our show there, uh, where you can listen to our current episodes and also the archive of our past episodes. Um, so. We are some five weeks and a couple of days out from the November midterms. And as we have been saying for at least the last year, need to be making sure, number one, that you check your, your voter registration status. Uh, you can do that at numerous websites. You can go to vote.org. You can go to Ballotpedia. Again, you can use the search engine of, of your choice and search for how do I register to vote? Uh, go and check your voter registration status. You should actually be doing that in light of what's going on with uh, voter roll purges and other things that are being done, uh, particularly if you are a person of color or you uh, are in a poor or rural community. 
they are targeting those groups more than other groups because the uh, the groups tend to vote Democratic and the Republicans are looking to to cull as many Democrats off the rolls as they can. All right. So check your registration. Definitely uh, do it now. Check it probably weekly and definitely check it, uh, you know, a, a day or two before Election Day just to make sure that you are, in fact, registered to vote and that you have not been removed from the rolls. If you are not registered or if your registration is gone, you can register to vote at the same websites that I just mentioned, vote.org, ballotpedia.org, uh, your, your local city hall uh, website, and so forth. But get registered to vote. Um, the next step you need to know is that many states have vote-by-mail deadlines, some of which uh, may have already uh, come and gone, but others will be coming up during the month of October. Uh, make sure when you go and check your status, find out when the mail-in voting deadlines are. Uh, find out where uh, you can request an absentee ballot if you don't haven't gotten one already. Uh, you can also uh, set reminders on some websites where they will remind you of upcoming deadlines uh, of uh, when and what you need to vote so that you'll, you'll never miss an election. And, you know, you've got to make sure that you are committed to register to vote. Please note that if you are going to be 18 uh, as of Election Day, you can register to vote. Uh, and, and some sites will even text you a reminder on your 18th birthday to do it. Uh, early voting locations, again, the dates and times of, of early voting uh, may change, uh, and you should keep aware of those. Make sure you understand uh, when you can vote early, where you can vote early, and have all of the uh, necessary uh, documentation. And on that note, a photo ID, a uh, state-issued ID, such as a driver's license or a state ID card uh, is you know, your best bet, a uh, passport, uh, any official identification document that has your current uh, address and, and information on it, as well as your picture, uh, you need to bring that with you when you register, and you need to make sure you have it with you when you go vote as well. You might also want to bring a, uh, a letter, a utility letter, a phone bill, water bill, uh, light bill, uh, you know, rent bill, or whatever, uh, to help support your proof of residence that you are, in fact, registered in the location that you vote in. Uh, you can locate your polling place. Again, all of the above-mentioned websites uh, can tell you where your polling place is and you know what the hours are and so forth. Uh, if there are uh, drop boxes in your voting district, you can also get those locations from the websites. And, you know, everything you need, uh, you can find at these, these websites. So make sure that you are doing your diligence, that you're doing your homework, that you're getting out there and you're finding out the information you need. Uh, ask the questions. You know, call up your city hall. Call up the 
uh, registrar of voters in your in your town or in your community and find out, you know, are there any specific things you need to have in order to vote on Election Day? And then most importantly, show up, go vote, get out there, uh, go early and get your vote in. Uh, if you vote in person, uh, which I do, since the, the polling place is literally three, bo- three blocks down the street from where I live, um, I vote in person. That way I know I'm guaranteeing that my vote got into the system. Um, and you know, make sure that you get your vote in. Make sure that it gets counted. Don't let anyone uh, that doesn't have an identification that says that they are an election official uh, or a, a poll worker uh, interfere with you going to vote. If someone is uh, asking you questions, uh, ask them if they are a poll worker or a poll watcher. And if they say they are a poll watcher, thank them, have a good day, and keep moving. They, they cannot interfere with you uh, going to cast your vote. If they continue to you know, block your path or create any kind of, of obstacle, uh, typically at most polling places, there is a police officer stationed there. Get that officer's attention and have him help you address that situation. If there isn't a police officer there, call your local uh, police station, uh, call on the non-emergency number, and have them send a police officer to you. You cannot be blocked from casting your ballot. That is against the law. So you know, make sure that you're doing everything you can to get your vote into the system the way you want it to be. And finally, uh, don't stop at the top of the ticket. Do your research. Find out about your candidates for office in your party all the way down the ticket. So from, you know, from senator to dog catcher. Uh, make sure that the people that you are voting for represent what it is that you want. So we'll, we'll keep talking about this. Uh, that's what we do here on this show. So we, we will revisit this again and again each week up until Election Day and beyond. And finally, uh, I always start off the show with numbers related to COVID. Uh, I will be I always will end the show, you know, in our election season with numbers related uh, to what is needed uh, for you know, our election system. Uh, we need to particularly uh, for the Democrats, if they want to retain control, they need to get um, 62 senators, 218 uh, U.S. representatives. And we need to make efforts to uh, have at least 26 uh, Democratic states uh, in order for the things that Democrats care about to move forward. Um, and that, that is our goal, not just for 2022, but also for 2024 and beyond. That needs to be our ongoing working goal if we're a Democrat and uh, making that happen. So... Please make sure that you are informed. Make sure that you get out and vote and don't let anything stand in your way. That's going to do it for this edition of Fired Up. As always, I thank you for listening. Uh, again, you can find us on uh, your, your favorite 
podcast locations. Uh, search for us in your search engine of choice. If you have questions or comments, please send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to get your thoughts uh, and uh, your opinions. Uh, I'd love to bring them to the show. So have a great day. Have a great week. Stay safe. And I look forward to bringing you another episode of Fired Up in seven days. Mm-hmm.